Welcome to Construction Cashflow. I'm your host, Stu Davidson, and if you haven't already done so, hit the subscribe button so you never miss an episode. His lawyers had run that for him and they'd brought in a quantum expert. My advice to him would have been, forget about it, you're never going to win that. Normally I can sit in the background until we need to turn the heat up further. It's kind of like having somebody in your corner, you know, in the in a boxing fight. Most subcontractors, a lot of main contractors, don't really have sufficient records in order to back up a delay and disruption claim. Probably none of the subcontractors I started working with would have reviewed the T's and C's. So if if you get to the end of the job and there's a claim and there's a condition precedent in the T's and C's and you haven't notified it, then you're you're goosed. In this show we ask our guests to tell us their story. Tell us a little bit about their background, how they got to where they are today, how they develop their product, their services, their ideas. And we discuss how that can affect construction cash flow and other areas of construction. And also to give us an idea of how we might make things better and give you a few tips and ideas to take away with you. And listen to the end where you'll find out more about them, more about our guests, about what motivates them, what inspires them, and hopefully that'll inspire you too. And always, don't forget to hit the subscribe button so you don't miss another episode. My guest in this episode is an adjudicator, a mediator, conciliator, and expert witness. He works widely with specialist contractors in dispute resolution. He has many, many years of experience in the industry with contractors, civil engineering and quantity surveying. He's somebody you definitely want in your corner in the event of a dispute. So it's my pleasure to introduce you to none other than Sean Bradley. How are you doing, Sean? It's great to have you here and to welcome you on to the Construction Cashflow Show. Super, Stu, and thanks for the invite. Um, I, I appreciate it. I've seen some and listened to some of the podcasts that you've done on LinkedIn, and it's, they're, they're, they're very interesting. Thank you. And I, I know the listeners will be really interested in hearing your story. So tell us a little bit about your, your background, your story, uh, how you got to where you are now. Um, well, I'm my primary qualification is civil engineer, so I'm a chartered civil engineer, which a lot of people kind of find surprising, particularly when you've, you're a fellow of the RICS. So quantity surveyor as well. So background is uh, 30 years in construction for contractors, predominantly one one contractor. This would have been Farns Construction in Northern Ireland, who operated all around the uk so heavy civils 
large buildings, schools, hospitals, bridges, water treatment works, that, that sort of thing. Um, so progressed from site engineer to commercial director over about 20 years. So commercial director for about 10 years, um, looking after the civils building, utilities, housing divisions. Um, we were turned over around 275 million at that time. So around about four years ago, um, I, at, at that part of my role as commercial director would have been involved in disputes or trying to avoid disputes and settling accounts. And I, I got an interest in that. Um, and I always fancied working for myself. So when I turned 50, shortly after, I thought, well, if I don't do it now, I'm never going to do it. So I, I made the leap, kind of leap of faith to start working on the dispute side, which pretty low key, just really word of mouth for some subcontractors. And I had a, a full time job at the same time as well in manufacturing. Um, running a steel manufacturing facility, which was different, totally new to me, but it was one of my contacts from previous. So start off with that into the sort of the business side of it, business restructuring, management processes. Um, and I have grew, started to grow then the side hustle, if you like, which was the ADR side of it. And then doing the law degree, adjudicator exams, mediator exams. So it's going by two years ago, which at, that became full time. So what I do now is kind of cradle the grave stuff um, from business estimating through to the ADR adjudication. So uh, uh, mostly a party rep, but if now sort of progress to the adjudicator, we are sitting in the middle in between the parties, which is interesting as well, Stress stressful. So you want you want to, to keep your name out of, out of out of the courts yeah i've done some i've done some expert witness work and uh uh yeah i found that that was quite stressful in terms of keeping with when the courts want information uh they want it in 24 hours and um you wait three months and then they want it the next day <laughs> they are working all night to get it to get it sorted out yeah yeah as well it's, it's Touch wood so far. I've, I've done a couple of expert witness jobs, but haven't thankfully got the court yet. And uh, so, only cross examine I had was just on the on the exams with the RICS, which was painful enough. Yeah, I can imagine. So, yeah. So, yeah. where is the uh, what? What do you think the key uh, type of dispute that you see nowadays? Payment, really. Got my eyes pretty well opened whenever i left my previous employer as i say who was a contractor i would have thought that well we, we were pretty fair and reasonable so that was the only that was the only sort of experience i had of the contractor side being and being the contractor for 30 years and treating subcontractors reasonably but going outside then and then having experience of dozens of other main contractors um it's i thought that behavior died in the 80s and 90s but it's like it's, it's like some of it is scandalous um so it's it's really payment disputes where 
the subcontractors don't know like obviously with the adjudication coming in a lot of subcontractors still wouldn't understand it and understand that it's actually um a very valuable tool for them to use to leverage payment mm. uh, the reluctance where i'm on i'm in northern ireland that's obviously pretty small um so there would be a reluctance for northern ireland um subcontractors to use that um to leverage payments uh, so they can't because of the repeat business side of it mm. in england working in england because there's it's a far bigger pool and more main contractors and a lot more subcontractors and it's it's not they tend not to be as reluctant but certainly in northern ireland southern ireland they would be reluctant so they kind of they kind of get a they get treated whatever way the main contractors and it'll come down to individuals not all of them or that bad but it'll come down to individuals and subcontractors just be treated the way the main contractors want to treat them um like taking discounts looking for discounts off agreed final account payments to get paid early or to get paid at all or to release retention it's not good so a lot of my clients i had originally thought whenever because i was a main contractor going out on my own i'll target main contractor clients to do the legal 80-yard dispute side claims work for them but one that would involve subbibition which i don't like and two a lot of the main contractors have their own resource legal resource lawyers or in-house um people so vast majority of my clients now are subcontractors or small main contractors um, but most of them will be subcontractors, even sub subcontractors. Um, so, as I say, just it, it, it's payment. The vast majority is payment and cash flow. What do you think the main cause of the um, the payment issues are at the moment? Um, well, the main the main cause I think is probably stems from the main contractors' price. So if the main contractor is kind of getting the tight cash wise, he's 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 less inclined to pay this the supply chain. Um so if it's a tight job, everything's tight and everybody's everybody's getting tight. Um but the and and that can actually just even taking claims or variations out of it, that can just reduce the cash flow then it's not going out um that's the biggest issue because i actually a lot if it was to rank my clients by trade probably the top trade would be m and e and i was thinking why have I so many m and e clients it's the same thing extensions of time extensions of time prolongation but it's because the m and e on big building projects are the last ones out so yep. you get to the end of the job what tends to happen if a building project is late the main contractors late 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 they get to the end they're up against the, the 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 deadline and they try and accelerate the works which means accelerating the supply chain which means the biggest contract the biggest subcontractor left at that stage would be the m and e and it's trying to get them to accelerate and then blaming them for the delay so and there was actually an article in one of the construction magazines shortly after i said that 
the one of my clients that that's probably the reason why I have so many ME clients is the the last one's out and they could blame then if the main contractor's in delay. If the main contractor gets damages imposed on him, then he'll just pass them on down. And and I think when when a subcontractor an ME contractor is asked to accelerate their productivity is never the same, is it? I, I mean, they they do may have an opportunity contractually to claim for loss and expense, but generally, particularly, I've seen it with labour-intensive um, trades that the more labour is on site, the, the the more the productivity goes down. So the yeah. the amount that they can claim in in um, uh, expenses is is probably not as much as they actually lose in lack of productivity and it's hard to measure sometimes it's, it, yes that's the nail on the head Stu. that's the big issue so they can they tend to forego the the land disruption element of it to the labor and just focus on the prelims because the, the land disruption element and most subcontractors, a lot of main contractors don't really have sufficient records in order to back up a delay and disruption claim. So that's really where they're losing out badly. Um, yeah, and that's, yeah, you're right. Rather than working on a couple of fronts over a period of six, seven, eight months towards the end of the job, then they're probably working on a dozen fronts with twice the resource. Yeah. You know, and yeah, the production goes way, way down. Yeah. What do you think uh, subcontractors could possibly do to protect themselves? Because this is the issue that comes up all the time, isn't it? It's the acceleration, uh, delay and disruption. It could be where a main contractor's logistics on site are not quite right and it's affecting the trade, but it's quite easy for them to blame the trade and ask for more resource. Um, what do you think the, the subby could do to protect himself? Do you think it's well a couple of key things but in relation to that certainly in relation to delays delays and, and disruption it really comes down to records um ideally well there's there's any god's amount of apps out there there's a there's one which is very basic i would say like and i recommend the clients clients actually a couple of my clients have been using it i've never come across it it's site audit pro which is just a one -off. yes i've i've used it myself I, I i used it myself i used to use it um quite a bit it's good it's a good little app isn't it yeah it just, it just takes photos and you can date stamp them and annotate them i put a, a, a comment in and then it'll compile it into a wee pdf report for you um and it's just getting into the habit of doing that i i was one of my m and e clients um i was looking at this is a, a probably an 18 month prolongation claims so pretty probably seven figures um there's a big healthcare project he showed me he says well we have i said what do you use to take records so they had site auto pro says well they have we have this open space you come across it open space yes yeah. i have yes yes it's like the 360 degree camera yep amazing it is it is yeah. actually i remember you mentioned open space in the thread and i went and looked it up and it looks amazing yeah it's not cheap but like if this is a million pound claim five grand is a pretty good investment to mm. to have the records and you can compare like you can, you can compare one image to the on a date to the, 
the previous image on the previous the previous time you did the survey to the previous one to the previous one. So the reason we were doing that is so we can see when the main contractor released the areas yeah. to, to allow the M&E to get in to carry out the works. So records like that's from Silo to Pro app, which is £12, one-off payment to open space, which is five or 6000 per year. Just depends on the, 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 the size of the project, I suppose. But getting the guys into the habits of having some records, you know, ideally programs, which is very, very few subcontractors do programs. Um, a lot of main contractors don't do programs properly. But that's one thing. Obviously, it all stems from, I suppose, it all stems from the price. If subcontractors, if their price is right, to get the price right, then they're not under as much pressure. And that'll come down to the level of detail goes into the price. And then the next thing then is the T's and C's. Very, probably none of the subcontractors I started working with would have reviewed the T's and C's. So if if you get to the end of the job and there's a claim and there's a condition precedent in the T's and C's and you haven't notified it, then you're, you're goosed. There's not enough subcontractors uh, go through the T's and C's and raise objections or challenges or amendments. And like you say, some subcontractors don't want to rock the boat, you know, so they'll sign up and then yeah. they find that their their profit's not protected and they're not they're not making a profit on the on the job at the end of the day. And it's all and it's all risk. What do you think the role of uh, bills of quantities play these days? I know that uh, some on design and build you see. Uh, main contractors they prepare bills not necessarily always to a standard convention and then they pass those to the subcontractor um, and then they say they do catch-all clauses like oh you know the contractors the subcontractors deemed to have included everything that we haven't measured <laughs> sort of thing and and what chances the subby got you know um, yeah. I'm, a, I'm a great advocate for having a, a bill of quantities done because it's a great a benchmark tool it's a, it's a management tool uh, very rarely done these days or done well um, yeah. who in your view should be doing do you think we should do bills of quantities is this a better way of doing it and and who do you think should should really do the bills of quantities yeah the last i remember the bills quantities probably one of the last times that you really used one in anger would have been um, probably 25 years ago on a major treatment works so it would have been IC 5 or 6 for um, NEC um, and so the client produced the bill which was SISM and you just loved that because just, it's particularly on a treatment works where there was a lot of pipe work there was always a lot of things missed from the bill so it was almost kind of free money. But producing clients producing bills of quantities, obviously they're taking on the risk. Nowadays, most of the projects that I've been involved in, probably in the last 25 years, 20 years certainly, are all D and B. So the client's not going to produce a bill of quantities, right? Mm. Uh, so then it's up to the contractor, but certainly the, in order to price the job internally the contractor's going to have to produce a bill of quantities now 
does the contractor, and I've seen some contractors do, does the contractor issue that bill of quantities to the supply chain for them to price? And caveat saying it's basically it's a lump sum, but here's the quants. I would, even if you're getting a bill from a client or getting the bill from a main contractor, which say my recent experience is kind of few and far between, certainly at the minute, um, should always do your own checks anyway. Mm. You know, should always produce, mean contractors should always produce their own bill of quantities for pricing it properly. And subcontractors yeah. really should almost price up from first principles off yeah. the, the drawings in the spec. Um, I suppose that's probably the difference between you and me, Stu, you being a QS and you being an engineer. <laughs> yeah well the thing i like about engineers and interesting when i used to do a lot of my business used to do a lot of billing and quantity surveying work my quantity surveyors were um trained up from being with civil engineers first so we yeah. we did a lot of work in so the bills were produced in india in hyderabad and the guys there were predominantly civil engineers and the right. reason I liked that was because they knew how a building went together so they were very very on the ball when it came to the yeah. nuts and bolts and and um, whereas I found uh, QS is coming out of university in the UK were more more tuned into the contractual and procurement side of things the strategic side of the work but not necessarily knowing how a building goes together so that's I think civil engineers make better QS's <laughs> well, yeah, well, that's kind of how I get in. So going back to when I started on sites, an engineer on the civils, the civils division of the company, the, the engineers or the project managers looked off to the commercial side. So that's how I initially get into it. On the building side, within the same company, on the building divisions, they had quantity servers. Um, so the civils companies turning over maybe at that stage 50 million each um on the civil side no quantity surveyors on the other side and it got some amount of quantity surveyors but so when i took over the commercial side of the, the the company i kind of recruited a lot of the engineers into the commercial to sort of to do you say the, the quantity quantity surveillance side of it and the big big benefit is like as as, as you said they understand the technical side so to me they were actually better than just a, a pure qs who didn't really understand the technical side of it and some of the like some of the qs's would actually have picked that up themselves in working with the engineers on on uh, in the commercial side on a project some of them would come to me and actually ask could they go back to university to do an engineering diploma even was my response was just get out and say yeah exactly and that's the best way isn't it to walk yeah. around site to get to talk to people on sites talk to the site managers and um yeah I, I, it's the best way and and come up with and, and maybe sit with them when there's solutions i i remember quite often sitting with the site manager or a special subcontractor foreman around a particular detail that the design team have been kicking around issuing drawings for ages and nobody could come up with a solution that worked and then we used to say well let's sit down and site and let's let's get a bit of paper and a pen and a, a, a scribble on a notepad and and, and let's work out and then we'll draw a drawing and we'll send that back to the design team and see if they can uh do anything yeah. with it yeah so that was a, way, a good way of, of learning how how things went together 
Yeah, no, hundred percent. Is I don't understand how you can actually yeah QS a project remotely, and uh, some of my bigger clients that's what they would do. The QS is not a very little interaction with the site and rarely go to site. Um, mm. For me, it just doesn't work. Really. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think it is in the detail. And I know for a, a couple of years, I've been quite interested in looking to see how um, micro milestone payments would work in construction to, to improve cash flow. And I think to get to micro um, micro milestones, it's you know you 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 put your project program has to be fairly granular it's more intense it's more um kind of uh labor intensive in terms of measurement and it's always uh i found that technology is not quite you know it's the, the expense and the cost of doing that has always been a bit prohibitive but i kind of think that there's some you know, there's some products with the, with technology now with data, and and as you said, the um, uh, the open space that maybe we could have another look at micro um, micro payments and looking at the you know getting to site and looking at the actual uh, what's going on per location as opposed to doing periodic payments, which are kind of a bit of a catch all. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What do you mean, like macro payments, like? Or micro milestones, like sort of weekly week milestones, or yeah, yeah, yeah. bring them down to <clears throat> a uh, you can manage weekly or even daily, uh, but and and also pinpoint the area that you're to, so so it's it's that so the payments related to the location within the building, so the building split up into a grid, so the grid as that particular part of the building gets completed. Um, the the payments are linked to the milestone, which re also relates to the where it is in the building. Then it can be related back to the drawing, and you can you, kind of map it as you go along. You just want to go back to using bills of quantities, Stu, don't you? Oh, I do. Yeah. Well, okay, you got me. <laughs> I miss them so really, much. <laughs> really, micro milestones. We'll break it down into the linear meter and square meter. <laughs> Yeah, I want to get my coloured pens out again and uh, measure some joinery, you know, and some skirting. That's what yeah, I used to like measuring. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so going back for a moment about uh, regarding the mediation, adjudication, alternative dispute resolution. Um, I noticed with some subcontractors, the cost of that is still fair, seen as fairly prohibitive, even in mediation. Um, can it be is it always expensive is there a way that they can access uh you know because they're already i i presume by the time they're getting to adjudication they're already owed money so money's going to be tight the cash flow is going to be tight and it may be a bit daunting to think well i've got to pay you know i could end up paying 20 30 40 000 pound for an adjudication um you know what 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 do you what's your views on that what have you come across with um that being prohibitive at all that certainly is a perception um of an incorrect perception i would say but it depends who you go to um a couple of horror stories but i'll maybe come to them but like i have run adjudications for subcontractors for um as little as five thousand 
Now, I would I wouldn't run that. I wouldn't run that if I wasn't pretty sure that we're going to win it. Because then, so they're not liable for the adjudicator's costs. Then all they're really liable for would be my cost, and if it's only five grand, it would be pretty small. I'm not mm. going to. I'm not going to charge them six grand for on the five grand adjudication, put it that way. Some of them actually have run that size, have, have gone back and says, look, I'll do a no win, no fee on it. If I if you win, you pay me. If you don't if you don't win, don't bother. Um I've done a couple of those, but the the cost of an adjudication, I'm in the middle of three of them at the minute as a party rep and one's an adjudicator. Um the party cost could be ten thousand if you don't for say maybe one an adjudication which is maybe over a hundred thousand two hundred thousand um so you could have your own costs which aren't recoverable of around ten thousand um you could have potentially the adjudicator's costs could be between ten thousand twenty thousand each for that low size of claim usually worst case you end up if you if you don't win everything you'll end up paying half of that so that's as much as you'll be out. Mm. Uh, but they had just finished an adjudication, which was the one I posted a couple of weeks ago, which was a seven-figure award where each party had a lawyer, um, quantum expert, a delay expert, um, and a couple of juniors. So like the legal costs on that were into the hundreds of thousands. You know, because yeah. you, each party's fighting fire with fire. But if it's a, if it's a, like I'm even running the adjudication at the minute, which isn't over money, it's over a, it's over a, I just want a declaration. So I'm, I'm, I'm running it just for the nomination fee. Do we get the declaration? And then we'll take it on to the quantum, um, which is a different kettle face. But it, it's, it comes down potentially to the strategy as well, Stu. So mm. you don't have to go in all guns blazing. And some disputes, I would would uh, try and ramp it up, ramp the pressure up from negotiation, maybe suggesting mediation, which is cheap. Mediation is a day for the mediator, which could cost between two thousand and ten thousand, depending on what the mediator, who the mediator is. And then you've got your party cost, but it's only one or two days. So that the mediation, but it, there's, you don't get a binding decision from the mediation. Both parties have to be prepared to compromise on the position, so it doesn't work all the time. But it's certainly worth a shot if there's significant enough sums in, involved. Um, but as I say, rather than just jumping into adjudication straight away, all guns blazing, blazing, depending on the, the, the nature of the dispute, you could take it in small bites. Maybe win a couple of the smaller ones. And then hopefully the, the responding party, the contractor, sees sense, and then they'll settle the final account. So that can happen also. Um, but certainly, yeah, if you don't manage the process, the main contractor doesn't manage the process and manage the resource going into it, then you could be out hundreds of thousands. Yeah, yeah. Actually, what you say about uh, strategy and maybe coming to somebody so if there's a specialist contractor subcontractor listening to the podcast you know to come to someone like yourself first that can talk to them about strategy and i like what hear what you say about maybe winning a few small ones if there's a smaller way you can do it or starting at a gradual level which as you say you know develop the strategy how we're going to go ahead and then that can match 
with their with their budget with the cash flow what their risk they're prepared to take so they're not as you say they're not going in all guns blazing or they're not going to a uh, maybe they're not going to a, um, a lawyer to begin with you know they come to someone like yourself who knows the industry knows the adjudication process get some advice and then at least they can um, form a strategy that's going to suit their their profile spot on yep um because like the first thing i'll do is look at the claim and if it's a crock of whatever then i won't be behind the door and saying that look you're on a hiding to nothing you may as well just forget it yeah or you you know there's no point in throwing good money after bad and so but some clients don't want to hear that um and some other parties that work in the ADR dispute resolution adjudication side of it don't really care so much about the claim they'll do whatever the clients tell them to do even if it is a crock and then they haven't a hope in hell winning like to see a comment I posted a, a, a judgment at the weekend because it seemed I'd read somebody lawyers had posted up we won this judgment in the court of appeal for our subcontractor client Right, and I thought, fair play to you, brilliant, I'll have to read it. But they went to the Court of Appeal, and even the head judge in it, and even he said, like, what is this doing here? You're not going to get any, all you'll get, you're kind of just winning, um, just scoring points over the other party, because you haven't asked for money out of it, and you're not going to get money out of it. So I'm like, what, what, how, how, how is that delivering value for your client? exactly yeah i i saw that post actually yeah it was really really good um and it highlighted uh you know people can get carried away you know yeah. it's almost like um you see in an auction room people have a go beyond their bidding limit and they just keep putting their hand up you know <laughs> they, they get into this competition you know and i can see it you know one and and one party scoring against the next and then you get egos involved and 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 then before you know it, you're you're before the courts, and uh, you've spent all this money, and and as you say, there's no point in it. You know what? You shouldn't have got there in the first place. Yeah, it's crazy. Like, uh, and I have lost, I have lost a couple of clients over it, where you're just telling them, guys, that there's actually no point. You're never going to win that argument. Mm. And I had, I had another, it was a some contractor that that I knew who phoned me and says, "Will you have a look at a an adjudicator's decision for me?" And I'm like, it's a bit late asking me to look at the look at the decision of the claim. But he was a bit miffed because he lost it. But whenever you looked mm. at it, it was my, my my advice to him would have been forget about it. You're never going to win that. Was lawyers had run that for him, and they'd brought in a quantum expert. And it gets back to your your values and your integrity, doesn't it? And I and I I I, I love the way that you approach your work because, you know, it's it it's got a lot of integrity to it. You know, you're going to tell a, a subcontractor whether it's worth taking forward rather than, you know, I see it quite a lot with um, not all lawyers, but some lawyers, they'll take the case on and they will never tell you, you say, well, what chance have I got of, you know, winning? And, and they never really tell you. They'll always sidestep the question. And like you say, I've seen it where they brought a quantum expert in and they've lost the case at the end of the day. And, and really, they were always going to lose the case, um, you know. Um, some of the ones in the TCC judgments, like that one, okay, was bad enough that mentioned earlier in the Court of Appeal. But some of the ones that get to the TCC, and you're kind of like, 
to you were never going to win that. <laughs> yeah, right? on the Galton horse could see you were never going to win that. Why? But it's people just getting entrenched and taking it personally. And you say eagles get involved then, and they just won't back down. Mm. Yeah. yeah, and there's there's always ways. I remember a case I was uh, involved in as an expert witness and it was a high court case and it was going to take five days in court and myself and the uh the expert witness for the other side um there was it was so complex and we had lever arch files all over the place and um we would have ended up taking a couple of days just going through that two or three days going through our bit you know let alone all the rest and the the barrister on behalf of, of my client uh, went to pre-meeting and they said, look, you know, you and um, the other expert witness, you're going to confuse the shit out of the judge. <laughs> you know, you're going to be going back. And he said, I said, look, he said, look, we've got to narrow all this down to one sheet of A4. And, and he okay. said, right, what we do is we had we ended up with about 12 points. And it was, if this happens, it goes to this side. If that happens, it goes to that side. So the judge gets the bit of paper and he goes, okay, you know, you can make a decision. Um, but that cut, what that did, it cut the court time down from, uh, I think, five days to one day. Yeah. You know, and uh, it made sense. But, you know, always looking at the court time is precious, isn't it? And if you're allowing things to go to court that shouldn't go there, and particularly the court of appeal, um, you know, it's court time, which is valuable, isn't it? You know, and I think there is an ethical uh, reason there to, if you can settle beforehand between the parties and get a remedy, look for remedies rather than um, trying to penalise each other. Yeah. Well, that, yeah, no, 100%. Like, as I say, when I talk to my clients, is we're not going to jump straight into adjudication or start to turn the heat up gradually. So the first bit would be then they introduce the likes of myself and try and have a conversation with their party meeting and go through and try and get something agreed. If that doesn't work, then you maybe suggest mediation. And if that doesn't work, then you maybe send them a draft notice of adjudication. Guys, we're actually, we haven't issued it formally, but it's actually ready to go. So this is really your last chance. And probably seven times out of 10, when it gets to that stage or before, it'll settle. Three times out of 10 on disputes that come to me, that you actually have to start the adjudication, you know? And then you'll only, you'll only start it on the merits. Like if you didn't, some of them, if, if if it was less than a 50-50 chance, okay, you might, you you really just want to, to negotiate it or mediate it. You don't want to go to adjudication because you know you're not going to win. So that kind of all comes into the strategy, you know. Yeah, it makes sense. So would you, would you, uh, would your starting point with a, with a client um, be a, a negotiation stage to, to begin with? Would you represent on a negotiating um, basis with a specialist subcontractor? I, I would encourage, definitely encourage them to talk, um, even without me. Um, like if the other party's talking, and just continue talking. Um, until that door shut, um, because that's that's the quickest and cheapest way of sorting it out. Um, you can't negotiate themselves, then they introduce me, which might help. Usually does help, probably 40-50% of the time. If I'm introduced, normally I can sit in the background until we need to turn the heat up further. 
subcontractors listening would like that approach because they kind of want to feel their way don't they they're already quite nervous about rocking the boat and to have that little bit of advice maybe in the background you know to to give them some uh, to support um to begin with yeah and give them a steer look it, it's it's kind of like having somebody in your corner you know in the in a boxing fight giving you advice and then whispering in your ear and then sending you out you know, but they keep the advice that they're giving you. They're giving you the right advice. Just don't go and stand there with your arms down by your side, you know, and take a beating, and then yeah. and then come back, sit down, and go back for more. You know, that's the wrong way. Go and and say this, and this is your position, and don't go beyond that. You know, even setting guidelines for their negotiation, it's and not blowing smoke, but the. The difference sort of between me and maybe a lot of others, certainly lawyers and that is I'm my background's construction, being contracting and dealing with subcontractors. And I'm an engineer, but also quarry surveyor, but it, it's I'm not just it's not I'm just not just coming from the legal point of view. I've settled umpteen disputes in the past from the opposite side of the table. You know, so I, I kinda know how I understand how it works. Yeah, it makes a big difference as well. And then you can relate and speak the same language, you know, because there's often a language barrier between a lawyer and a subcontractor. And and you being in the industry and understanding the industry, understanding the culture, and um, makes a big difference. Yeah, yeah. So how could um, how could people um, kind of get to get in touch with you? What's the best way uh, for them to do that? Um, well, I have a website. Um, was I put a lot of the the posts or the documents, the cases that were put in LinkedIn. So the, the website is Sean Bradley, Sean Bradley Consultancy.co.uk. And obviously LinkedIn is where I'm um, most um, visible, let's say. Um, yeah, we could, we could, um, yeah, I mean, I can put the link in there for you on the, um, on the podcast. So, yeah, so if you're listening, uh, the link will go in below if you want to contact uh, Sean for some, uh, you know, to, to talk to him if you've got any issues that you want to, um, want, need resolving. Um, yeah, you so can contact through, Sean that way. Yeah, so through the website, there's a contact page as well. So they can email me through the website. Fantastic. That's great. So, Sean, have you got time for a quick fire round? Yeah. Okay. So, I'll, um, so first question, a bit of fun. Uh, how do you start your day? Um, same way I've started it for since I started, st since I stopped traveling, um, which was, was it for, for work. Um, so, since I started working on my own um is the gym so up at half five and under the gym at six o'clock for an hour seven days a week really um i have to do that it's not so much for the fitness but it clears your head you probably too you know what to look fit are you most productive um earlier rather than later um I would say so early early in the morning be most productive obviously you're getting up early then you're tired in the evening so if you're trying to read a court judgment at nine or ten o'clock at night it's it can't the eyes close <laughs> so yeah. trying to trying to obviously have an office at home here so mm. if the wife and kids are out and you've no distractions and the phone's away is is just trying to get into 
say particularly if you were doing a, a, a working on a big claim, it's really yeah. The the mobile and emails can be a, a killer to productivity. Um, his son did a talk for GCSEs to his class there a couple of weeks ago on that. Um, but yeah, early in the morning and and try and get rid of the phone and the emails and just get stuck into something. What's something new happening in your life right now? Um, me, new, me, well, me and my son have just started jiu-jitsu, Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Hey, so fantastic. Yeah, I thought that before I started. <laughs> Maybe. Okay. Good, good luck with good luck with that one, Sean. It can be, it can be quite painful, so I can. Yeah. So what what does adventure look like to you? Um, probably just holidays. City, we try and do a couple of city breaks um, in the year, and then obviously holiday with all the family, daughters, um, granddaughter now, so um, and another one on the way, well, another grandchild on the way. Um, so probably just city breaks, um, seeing different countries, um, hiking while I'm out there, um, yeah, get a bit of R&R. What thing would you love to do that might surprise your friends and family? I'll probably go back to the jiu-jitsu. So I actually, once I started, I kind of got a bug for it now. We've been doing it for about six months, so I want to try and get my blue belt, which will take a bit of work. And a bit of time so that's probably yeah that's it that's an aspiration what challenge have you overcome that changed your life probably going out on my own so i was in a pretty good position with, a, with my previous employer commercial director um the reasonable opportunities following on from that um but just decided really just a clean break go and start from scratch effectively so that was big that was a big challenge but um quite stressful in the beginning as i'm sure you, you you can appreciate but it takes a bit of time and you keep plugging and plugging and plugging and working at it and you kind of get over the peak what inspires and motivates you i'd say at the minute my i have two older daughters one's married one's finishing medicine at the minute um i have a 16 year old son and he's he's doing gcse's but he is he he is pretty inspiring he's very he's a lot more focused um than i was when i was his age he gets up at half four in the morning to do a workout and then do his reading. Um, if he's not doing a workout, he's reading, doing his homework. Um, he watches what he eats and then he's in bed come half nine. The last 18 months, he's he's read more books than I've read in my life. <laughs> it, sounds, it sounds like he's read uh, habits, top habits of successful people <laughs> and he's putting he, into practice. I got him. That's probably one of the first ones he did read, but it was the teenager version. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Ah, no, that's great. I'm sure he's going to be really successful. He's got the discipline. Well, that. Yeah. Well, that's. Yeah, he is. He's, he's working. He's working hard. So yes. What does success mean to you? I 
enjoy the kind of what we're talking about is trying to is trying to add value or to prevent or secure subcontractors, specialist contractors getting what they're entitled. So I get a buzz, if I get an award in the in the adjudication, be it five thousand pound or five hundred thousand pound or a million pound plus. Um, it's you're getting a lot of my clients will be small one man bands. So ten thousand pound to them is a lot of money. Um, and yeah. that it to me that's a, that's a big success. And if I can keep doing that, that's what I want to do. What advice would you give? your young self that would be i kind of probably did so i kind of i kind of like to think that some chain is that younger i would view him as my younger self and i kind of give him two pieces of advice one was at your age you know next to nothing right and two would be um quote from Marcus Aurelius, which is this inspired book by Anne Holiday, the obviously is the way, but the quote is the impediment, the action, maybe nobody know it. Impediment, the action advances, action what stands in the way becomes the way. So the obstacle is the way. So he's read that book as well by Grand Holiday. Um that's I think those two pieces of advice are pretty good. On those two amazing pieces of advice. Thank you so much, Sean. It's been a pleasure. An amazing interview. I really enjoyed it. Thank you, Stu. I enjoyed it too. You've been listening to Construction Cashflow. Hit the subscribe button if you haven't already done so, so you never miss an episode. And remember, the faster cash flows, the faster wealth grows.